Just waiting for the light to go completely red here. Hello. So today is the third Sunday in this particular series. And if you haven't picked up on it, we're dealing with false teaching, false influencers, false prophecy, false gospel, false narratives, um, in order for us to start our year off on talking about leadership and what it means to have a true influencer, a true leader, a true teacher, a true prophet, a true narrative. Um, With that said, as discussed, in order to understand leadership, we have to first be good followers. That's the first thing that we talked about, and that's, of course, exemplified in Christ. And in order to keep from being unduly influenced, we need to understand the gospel of Christ, which is what we talked about last week. And we need to understand the gospel of Christ with all of its ugly truths about our personhoods and about our need for redemption. We have to understand the gospel in its proper context and not just what we want it to be. And this is because there are false gospels that are out there, as Christ said there would be. They float around all of us, and there are more to come on the horizon. If you just listened to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew... He talks about more to come on the horizon. Those gospels are self-proclaimed truths which pretend to be the gospel of Christ but in actuality are only a caricature at best of the gospel of Christ. And at worst, they are outright heresies. Many in the church, according to scripture, will hold these gospels and some will be what we call heterodoxy and that just means... uh, Kind of true, but we're not really sure. So being enough of truth to say that it could be true, but then it produces weird fruit. We call that heterodoxy. Some of them, of course, will be outright heresy. Heresy uh, is basically something that will define a Christian as not actually being a Christian at all. Paul calls them apostate. He says that they should be called anathema. These were his words in Galatians. So open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 1, 6 through 9. This is what it says. I am shocked. I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one that we preach to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be anathema. Let that person be cursed. The issue of staying true to Christ is a gospel issue. And Jesus is, of course, although apparently we can't take that for granted these days, at the heart of the gospel. To have the correct gospel is to have a correct understanding of who Jesus was in human history. Who he is at this very moment in time and who he will be when all things are summed up and said and done. And if you change any of these points, then you do not have a correct gospel. 
If you change any of these points, then you do not have a correct gospel. Your form of the gospel is, in fact, a perversion. It's a perverted one. And this is because Jesus is not just simply a historical figure. Jesus is a definer of history. He's not merely defined by it. His influence on history is transcendent to history. Do you know what transcendent means? It means being outside of the control of something. You are transcendent to it. New events can uncover old things about him, but they don't create new things about him. So all that has been revealed is what there is. There are no new things to learn about him. He is an ontologically constant thing in nature. The entire story of mankind is therefore folded around him, as the book of Colossians says in chapter 1. When Paul makes an argument for the gospel as a transcendent narrative, that is precisely his argument. The gospel narrative is transcendent in that it's not merely one of many stories that can be altered and changed over time without consequence. But it is, in fact, the main story. And Jesus is, in fact, the main person in that story, the protagonist. And altering it alters the entire story. If you have no more Jesus, as he's revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures, through the testimony of his apostles and the Holy Spirit, then there is no more main story. This should be of utmost importance to you. And the reason why is because without there being a main story, there is no more us. We are not self-making. We don't exist because we want to exist. We exist to tell that story, the story that God wants to tell about himself. We exist to tell that main story, and you cannot have us without having Jesus. God's narrative is too well-crafted to allow sweeping changes, or what one might call small tweaks. These changes, these tweakings in theology, are what we talked about earlier. These changes, these tweakings in theology, turn out to be what the forefathers of the church called heresies. So I want to enlighten you, because heresies are not new, they're old. There's classic heresies that are present now in this day and age. So here's a couple for you. The two main heresies that we see are Gnosticism and Judaizing. Now within Gnosticism, there's a bunch of different heresies, and I'm going to sort of outline them for you. But Gnosticism is quite simply, give me a second, Gnosticism, um, particularly Valentinianism, is a reliance on revealed knowledge from an unknowable God, one that is distinctly divine from the Demiurge who created this world. That sounds very collegiate, so let me explain it differently. Gnosticism says 
that there are two realities. One is the created reality, and one is the spiritual reality, and that we are locked into the created reality, but that's not our true essence or person. Our true person, according to Gnosticism, is the spiritual reality. And the creator God has locked us in this world and is trying to keep us here. So the point of our existence is to escape the physical world and transcend into the spiritual world from which we came but have never understood because we've forgotten it. Now that may sound fanciful, but we'll talk about that a little later. In Gnosticism, there's different beliefs. There was a guy named Marcion, and he had something called Marcionism. And he believed that the God of Jesus was a different God than the God of the Old Testament. There was a guy named Montanist. Montanist. Yeah, Montanist. Montanist relied on prophetic revelations from the Holy Spirit. He believed that nothing was completely revealed, that it was always revealing itself through the Holy Spirit, that there were new things that we could learn and new ideas and interpretations as long as the Holy Spirit would fall on you and give you these new interpretations. Then, of course, we go to the overarching category of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who believed that Christ's followers still had to come under the law of Moses in order to be saved. And those are only a few of the early heresies, and I could give you more. What I would suggest is, if you're interested in it, because it is a very interesting thing, go and read Bruce Shelley's uh, Church History in Plain Language. We have digital copies and physical copies in the church. Um, And you'll see for yourself that the heresies are plenty. Tweakings. Tweakings to the story of Christ. What's important to note is that all of these tweaks are tweakings to the story of Jesus Christ and his specific nature. It should also be noted that none of those are unique. They repeat in history over and over again. Gnosticism in particular, the big one, the one that encompasses things like Montanism and Marcionism and Doceticism and... I didn't even explain Doceticism, did I? But it goes across the board. Gnosticism is something that is particularly virile in today's day and age. It's been around the block, and it continues to find many audiences. It is a large, large part of Jungian psychology and its practices. And it's deeply linked to the satanic work of Aleister Crowley. It's present in today's Christians, even, who speak of other gospels and place emphasis on various works, such as the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of truth, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Mary. Those are Gnostic works. Any system which seeks to separate the deity of Christ from his manhood by claiming that the That humans are innately divine, but that we've been locked behind a cage of creation and that we need to escape it out of the physical world. This type of thought has completely infiltrated the mainstream with works more, more out there, such as the Da Vinci Code, where it's more obvious and they're literally talking about Gnosticism and Gnostic Christianity, and then more insidious, such as works like The Matrix which uses Gnostic terms like the Demiurge and the, uh, what are they called? You guys probably wouldn't know either. They're the second movie. But the, uh, I can't remember what they're called, Archons. It uses terms like that, and it talks about how we're stuck in this world of our own design and we need to get out of it. That's Gnosticism. 
The Truman Show. It's Gnosticism. The main protagonist in Gnosticism, her name is Sophia. And she created the world by accident, and she has come into the world to, to, to save it, according to Gnosticism, by opening up the mind of people. Watch The Truman Show. The woman who helps Truman escape this world. Her name is Sophie. There's more to it. Truman. True man. I'm telling you, go and, go and check it out. Transformers, talking about the all-spark, the divine spark that needs to return to the source. V for Vendetta, directly quotes Aleister Crowley. Pleasantville. Pleasantville, black and white. What brings color to the world? Knowledge. Knowledge of sensual things. Gnosticism is popular. It teaches that Christ frees us from our lack of knowledge, rather than the biblical teaching, of course, which is that Christ frees us from our sin. Not our lack of knowledge, but our sin. So in Gnosticism, God the Father turns into what we call the demiurge. The demiurge is just a way of saying, I think it's Greek, and it literally translates to creator God. So in Gnosticism, the father in the Trinity turns into the demiurge, who is a bad guy of the story. And Jesus is turned into, get this, the snake in the Garden of Eden, who frees us by giving us knowledge. Now in the Bible, the snake is who? Lucifer. But in Gnosticism, the snake is Jesus. Yet many Christians claim that the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, all of these being Gnostic works, are somehow biblical. It teaches that, Gnosticism teaches that that we can become like God. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? This is what uh, Linda Johnson, who's an occult expert, says about Gnosticism. The Gnostics were profoundly disturbed by some of the stories in the Jewish Torah, the first five books of the Christian Bible. For example, according to the Torah, God plants the two trees of knowledge and immortality in the Garden of Eden, yet forbids Adam and Eve to eat from them. He warns the other gods, the Elohim, that if humans should taste omniscience and everlasting life, they will become divine like God himself, and this must be prevented at all costs. The Gnostics, however, felt that if God was truly good, he wouldn't want to keep these divine gifts from humankind, and therefore concluded that the God of the Old Testament is evil, a malignant being who traps human souls in the world of matter that he created in order to keep them subject to his own power. They believed he must prevent them from realizing their true nature, that they are divine beings from a kingdom of light which transcends the world of suffering in which he keeps them enslaved. This alternate reading of the book of Genesis can be found in the Nag Hammadi texts on the origin of the world and hypostasis of the archons. Does that sound familiar to you? That we are divine beings who need to escape our suffering? That's not the gospel of Christ. The Gnostics also believe that beyond the creator God lies the true supreme being, the existence of whom God, uh, the Demiurge, doesn't recognize because he's blinded by his violent temper and jealous. It was this supreme being that they maintained who sent Christ to earth in the form of a snake to rescue Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. In other words, 
It was Christ who appeared to Eve, according to the Gnostics. Eve was more spiritually advanced than Adam, of course. And invited her to eat from the tree of knowledge. But God realized what was happening, and he threw Eve and Adam out of the garden before they had a chance to also eat from the tree of eternal life. Because God stopped them from reaching the second tree, humanity remains subject to death to this day. How could these early Christians equate the snake in the garden with Jesus Christ? Isn't the snake supposed to be Satan? The Gnostics pointed out that Jesus was wise as a serpent and was hung on a tree, just like the snake in the garden. I don't know what they're talking about there. They also noted that once, when the Israelites were perishing of disease in the desert, Moses hung a brass serpent on a pole to save their lives, an indication that the snake in the garden was also meant to represent a savior. In short, the Gnostics believe they must reject the malevolent creator God who wants us to remain trapped in the world of matter and turn instead to the supreme being in the kingdom of light who is Jesus' true father and ours as well. I don't know about you guys, but that kind of disgusts me. If you ever get a chance to see one of the logos for a prominent church in Gnosticism, it is literally a serpent hanging on a tree. Gnosticism is hugely prevalent in our day. We see it, for instance, in white supremacy. They reject the Jewish God, but embrace Jesus. That's a modern form of Marcionism. The emergent church movement, which seeks to view God's love in the New Testament without his judgment in the Old Testament. There are those who believe in what they call mere Christianity, or they also call themselves red-letter Christians, who believe that only the words of Jesus matter, but nothing else. No context. Marcion would agree with them. Even the secular worldview of Marxism, Marxism, which believes that religion is a cage, the opiate for the masses, which we must shed. Jesus is not in line with this type of teaching. Because here we find that Jesus is disconnected from his father. It would be like having Superman land in Mother Russia. When you do that, it alters the story, changes it forever. How does that work when Jesus clearly states that he does the will of the Father, or notes things like, I and the Father are one. How does it work when his apostles repeatedly reference the Old Testament to prove Jesus' connection to the Father? Then, of course, we have Montanism within Gnosticism. That's everywhere. You think that Marcionism's easy to find. Montanism's even easier. Montanism claims... That the Holy Spirit has given a new revelation about who Jesus is. Where do we see that? We see it everywhere in pseudo-Christian cults. Right? What do you think Mormonism is? The Holy Spirit has given a new revelation of who Jesus is. We see it in Jehovah's Witnesses. We see it in Islam, even. We see it in the Iglesia de Christos. In all of these, Christ takes a back seat. 
He takes a back seat to whatever new revelation comes along. And instead, Christ becomes one in a long list of prophets. That is not what the scripture teaches. That is, of course, counter to the teaching about Christ himself. That he is, I am, equal to God and no one else. The Judaizers are also everywhere. There are regular run-of-the-mill Judaizers who believe in the Jewish Old Covenant and don't even believe in the New Covenant like they've never read the book of Galatians. And then there's Judaizers by other names, such as those who believe in legalism, who say that God doesn't allow people to dance, for instance. Or you're not a Christian if you smoke, for instance. That's just an old form of a tweaking of the truth. In each of those circumstances, Jesus and his ability to save you has been diminished. It's been diminished, and instead, you have to live by some sort of work. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Paul, speaking firmly with tongue-in-cheek. Paul, speaking firmly with tongue-in-cheek to the Galatians, and their incessant need to circumcise people, says this in chapter 4. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, then you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ, and you have fallen away from God's grace. What do you think he means by that? Guys, That's a joke. A particular type of joke. And it's in Scripture. And it's a good one. And it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But, let's forget about that and let's notice the opening of the passage where it says, Christ will be of no benefit to you. If you are trying to make someone get into heaven by following a law then Christ will be of no benefit to you. No benefit, which includes what? No salvation. See, you can't change the story of Christ. To do so is to change your own story. If you have a Gnostic Christ, if you have a Gnostic Christ, then you live in a physical cage. The Creator God didn't make you. He caged you. If you have a Gnostic Christ, then you shouldn't enjoy creation. Creation is at best an illusion and at worst a deception. You should hate it. And those who look out into the world and see beauty everywhere and marvel at the handiwork of God, those people are fools because they are being fooled by a false creator, a demi-urge. According to that belief, there's a deeper knowledge that we're supposed to attain. One that denies existence for transcendence. According to their own works, God and Satan are inverted. To them, the Christians worship the devil because he is the creator God. And their true Jesus is Satan, the serpent in Eden. 
In the Gnostic view, you are not a person made in the image of God. In the Gnostic view, you are an accident. An accident by Sophia, who needs to be freed from creation. If you have a Marcionite view, then your ideas like justice and mercy and self-value get replaced with formless and esoteric love. There's no definition to who you are and who you should be. If you hold a Montanist view, then your definition is also ever-changing. Your identity is arbitrary. It's always based on new revelations from the Holy Spirit, new ideas, and therefore you can't be certain of anything. If you're a Judaizer, then your sinful nature will leave you without a hope of salvation because you can't be perfect, even if you cling to your own ability and skill. The list goes on and on. And I hope you understand that it goes even beyond the pseudo-Christian beliefs. Those of you who are familiar with Eastern beliefs should hear it in there too. When I'm talking about the idea that life is an illusion... And what we need to do is find the deeper truth beyond that. What am I describing? Hinduism. We need to break the karmic cycle and the dharmic cycle and achieve nirvana, a true understanding that life is an illusion because we are in this cage. That is a tweaking of the story of who you are. And it is a false Christ. All of these alternate truths are achieved by altering sometimes large but sometimes tiny aspects of who Christ has revealed himself to be in Scripture. But notice something else as well. These tweaks affect you. In all of these tweaks to the story of Christ, there is a price to pay. There is a consequence for allowing these tweaks to exist. The consequence is your very understanding of yourself as a human being. And that's because God's narrative is crafted perfectly. It doesn't need tweaking. It has the correct equilibrium, the correct balance. And when the world bases itself around God's narrative, it flourishes. It thrives. But it also crumbles when the world rejects God's narrative and God's role in it. Christ is the linchpin to our existence. He is the cornerstone of our existence. He is the key. He is the answer to life itself. Not Christ as you see him, but Christ as the Bible shows him to be. To the wise, Christ is the rock upon which our survival is certain. But to the fool who stands upon his own, who builds his house upon the sand, who confidently strolls upon the broad and open path, Christ is the stumbling block. Be you a false prophet, of pseudo-Christian persuasion or a false prophet of the pagans 
Be you a false prophet of the atomic age or a false prophet of transcendent humankind or a false prophet of the vast nothingness. Every foot on the wide road will stumble upon the rock of salvation. That is Jesus Christ. And every traveler will one day bend the knee and call him Lord, either behind the gates of hell or within the gates of Zion. It's not simply the name which makes Jesus Jesus. It's his full character on display behind that name. Avoiding a terrible stumble on that road means paying more than lip service to the name Jesus. Yeshua. So we know that we have to be willing to follow in order to recognize leadership. And we know that we must know the true gospel to recognize a false gospel. But here I say to you that you must have the true Christ to truly know anything, including yourselves. Without knowing Christ, your life is a mess. You may be a rich man. You may achieve fame. (coughs) Excuse me. You may become a celebrated academic, but if you do not recognize the Christ of the Bible in your life, if you supplant him with something else, even a Christ of your own design, it will come at a dire cost to you. Because only the true Christ who existed in real time and space 2,000 years ago and to this day is capable of marrying all things into harmony in this life. And only the true Christ is capable of saving you in the next. But to recognize the true Christ, then, is also to recognize your true selves. And as the scriptures say, oh, wretched creatures that we are. And this wretchedness is always where we fail to meet the true Christ. But here's the thing. You have to know that you are wretched in order to truly come before Christ. What happened to the rich man when he came to Christ and said, I have done everything to get into the kingdom of heaven? And Christ said, okay, Now go sell everything that you have. And what happened to him? He walked away dejected because he thought that he was better than he was. We're monsters. And if you don't know that, then you don't know yourself. Kabbalah, which in my opinion is the earliest tweaking to the story. It's a Jewish uh, religion. It's a Jewish mysticism, if you will. Kabbalah teaches 
that God wanted to look upon himself. And so he turned himself into a man so that he could look in the cosmic mirror and recognize that he was God. That man sinned. And when that man sinned, he was split up into multiple different beings that have forgotten that they in fact are God. And one day, as we die, our energy comes back into one, and then it will look into the cosmic mirror and see itself as God. That's what Kabbalah teaches. Sounds strangely like Gnosticism, if you ask me, but it predates it. Kabbalah would teach you that you should stand before the cosmic mirror and look upon yourself and remember that you are God. Incidentally, so would the last Jedi. What do you guys think that scene was about where she looks into the she looks into the ether and sees what herself? It's Gnosticism, it's Kabbalah. I want to warn you that when you stand before the cosmos and you stare into your soul, what do you think you're going to find? You will find that you are a perversion. Made in the image of God, but something's not right like in those horror movies where somebody walks past a mirror and there's like something off about the reflection. You guys know what I'm talking about? Something's not right when we stand in the cosmic mirror and we look at ourselves. Something's off heater, which by the way is a Kabbalic term. Something is vile about our reflection. We don't look right. And if we think we do, then the only real conclusion is that we're delusional. We're drunk on Satan's Kool-Aid. We are not the divine spark that is returning on our journey to reunite with the source of all things. We are a rebellious creation. We are a rank, arrogant, amateur Sovereign. Returning to the one true God, not to unite with his essence and substance so that we can become him, but instead to be judged. We are ontologically inferior to God, morally repulsive by comparison, and thoroughly unimpressive in our own agency. We cannot be ontologically like God, but we are made in his image. Even so, we are always and always will be, in essence, different from him. We are creature, and he's creator. And yet somehow we always want to make or have or hold or have a relationship with a Christ that removes the stain of that inferiority, of our moral failure. We make Christ into less than the God that he actually is so that we can be comfortable. 
so that we can feel good about ourselves. We make Christ into less of a man than he is. We disconnect Christ from his Father. We disconnect him from his church. We disconnect him from the Holy Spirit. We disconnect him from his word in the scriptures. We disconnect him from our story in human history. And I've heard endless, ridiculous lies about him in service of these fantasies. And people have called him things like the spirit brother of Lucifer. Or the first in God's creation. And that same lie, it comes with a promise that's self-serving for us, right? Because that means that we are equally God's children. That makes us look really good. When they call him the first created being of God, or even a mere angel of God, God's prime creation, what does that say about us? Because we know that we're God's prime creation too. They call him a ghost or a mass hallucination that everybody saw. Why do you think they do that? Because we all have imagination. They call him a mere prophet that any of us could be. They call him a good teacher that any of us could be. They call him a mere avatar as any of us could be. They call him a good idea, as any of us could have. They call him whatever lowers him and lifts themselves up. Because at the end of the day, it is the goal of mankind's foul and sin-tainted heart to become God. And you can say, no, like that's a certain subsect of people, and I've never believed that lie. But what you have to note is the essence of what I'm talking about. The essence of the idea that we can know right from wrong or good from evil on our own. It's not about where we come from or are physically made of, but instead, what I'm talking about is whether our faculties are intrinsically connected to a moral standard. Do we get right and wrong in our hearts? In Eden, our moral standard was God. Just as it will be when kingdom come. But Satan told Eve that her moral standard didn't need to be defined by God anymore. That she could be on the same level as him, defining for herself by the lust of her eyes what is right and wrong. And after Eden, our moral standard is no longer God, it's us. You don't need to define your new moral standard at the root level to have planted the idea. And that's why the Bible views this as an issue of a sinful heart. Not of a sinful action, but of a sinful heart. 
Because out of the sinful heart grows a fruit of sin. That's how you know that your heart is the problem. And so it may look like for one person calling Jesus Lucifer's brother. Or it may, li- it may look like thinking that it doesn't matter if Jesus is actually real, as long as he serves a purpose for us. Or it may look like thinking that Jesus is God, but not thinking that he is going to judge the evil and throw the evil into a pit of their own destruction. All of those things come from a sinful heart. It doesn't matter how the branches grow on the tree. The fruit of rebellion has a seed that is a rebellious heart. You can say that I don't do that all you want, but we all do. And that's why we stand in judgment. And every human being since Adam has stood opposed to God no matter how moral he has been. And this is true of every person in this room. And it doesn't matter how good you might believe yourself to be. Because left to your own devices, each and every one of us would betray him. And trade him in for a false god of our own making. And what's worse, we would do it willingly. And we would do it with bellies full and pleasant dreams. All the way into hell. And so I'm going to be vulnerable with you for a second. I know this super well. Even as a mature believer, I know that that's my moral state before God. And I'm going to give you a prevalent example, a prescient example. So most of you know that I decided that I was going to change the way that I was living my life, like for nutrition's sake, right? And for like being more healthy, right? And part of that included a realization that I needed to change my relationship with food. And so part of changing my relationship with food is giving thanks, is understanding where it comes from, and making sure that I'm giving it the appropriate context before it comes into my body. And this is something, the mechanism is definitely something I was taught when I was young, praying before I eat. But I never really took to that mechanism, and so I didn't really teach that to my family. It's not something that I think is a a necessity in terms of the mechanism of our Christianity. But as I'm reevaluating my life, and I'm reevaluating that I need to change my relationship with food, I need to place God into that to make that successful. Not just to make it successful, but because it's right. But I've had a hard time with that. I find myself halfway through a meal forgetting to pray. And when I say pray, let me be clear. 
my entire life, I've always had the thought process that I'm, that I'm thankful for my food. And I do thank God for my food. But I'm talking about taking an inconvenient moment to thank God I can, I can purpose myself to fast for five days, 120 hours. I can intentfully keep myself from eating food for five days, and I can purpose myself to be conscious of the food that I'm eating. By the way, nobody's asked, but I'm doing really well with that. And I can purpose myself to make all of these changes, but I still find myself halfway through a meal, or sometimes the meal is already long gone before I thank my God for his providence. And you can say that that's because it's a new learned behavior and it should get easier. I've studied quite a bit of psychology and I would agree with you. That's true. Partly. That it will just take time to show my gratitude And I should just continue to be consistent. But the truth is, between you and me, and apparently the internet, that there's a deeper, darker reason behind my ability to not have that level of self-control. And it's a reason that I am ashamed of. But I'm not more ashamed of it than if I didn't share the truth. And that truth is that I, like you, am ungrateful. I am an ungrateful monster. That's my tendency. And that's why my tendency to give thanks is not one that's in faith before I've received but instead it's an entitlement after I've received. And that monster in me has had the reins of my mortal shell since the day that I was born. And it's borne its fruit in my body. And it wants to kill me. in a very literal sense. Given that, I should be able to acknowledge that it has only been by the grace of God that I have become anything of value in this world. And it continues to be only by the grace of God that I can live victoriously. Even as a man, born in the church, raised in a land of prosper, entrusted to a godly family, mentored into leadership my entire life, having been a Christian for 35 years, having been in ministry for 20 years, having been a pastor for 15 years, I still continue to unpack 
God's graces which are new every morning. And I am also and ever deeply impressed with just how undeserving I am. The truth is, is that I am evil. But in Christ, because he lives, because he imputes upon me his righteousness and empowers me with his spirit. I'm righteous. And I'm holy. And I'm his adopted child. An undeserving heir to his kingdom and his riches. And he did this for me and he did this for you. And he came for me in my sin to offer me repentance and a faith beyond wishes. And yet he warns us, despite all this, despite his grace, that wolves will be coming. They will come and they will take his name. And they will do this by looking like you. By wearing clothes of sheep. And some may say that that means that they will appear as Christians. But to me, that's not a good thing to say. Sheep are stubborn. Sheep are foolish. The reason why they have to have a shepherd is because they will eat and eat and eat until there's nothing left. Sheep always seek shelter in the flock of their peers, and it doesn't matter if one of those peers happens to be a wolf. These wolves will be able to blend in, not simply because of the sheep's clothing that they wear, but because they have the same behavior. Because they are unchristian. Because instead of being sheep who know their shepherd and hear his voice and who follow, they will be sheep who veer away from the flock, seeking affirmation from their own numbers and from mutual interests. And the wolves will be able to pick the sheep off to their liking. We are not good. And if we are sheep who run, who run amongst a group of our peers being selfish and stubborn and destroyers of the land, how then are we not like the wolves? Why? Because we don't have teeth like wolves? Because we don't kill each other? Do you know that sheep will actually eat meat? It's been observed before when they get hungry enough. 
When the food wanes, how many sheep will we find are actually wolves? And that's the truth. The sheep are barely better than the wolves and only fail to recognize the wolves because they are so much like them already. So then how can I turn and tell you that we are good? How can I turn and tell you that we are good and that God sees us as good? That would be an act of hate on my part. It would be hateful sabotage on my part. Yeah, maybe you're right. It wouldn't be hateful sabotage against you. That's true. Telling you that you're good might stave off some of your insecurities. It might put you in a better mood for that day. It might help your self-esteem. But it's hateful. It's hateful against the God who saved me. What an act of hate against the God who saved me and who saved me from my sin. How could I do that to him? So I'm not going to tell you that you're good. Our version of goodness needs to be put to death. We need a new Adam. We don't need an old Adam. We need a new Adam. And that's why Jesus Christ came as the new Adam. And he commands that we define our moral essence and our moral ontology again by his own submission to the will of the Father. In Jesus, there is a return to the moral state of submission to God. Only in Jesus can we be called good. And this is because Jesus is God. Now Jesus defined his essence and his actions together, which meant that if he is who he says he is, then he would truly have to be God, which is, of course, a claim that he makes. And it also means that any tweaking to the definition of himself undoes who he is in totality. Yet, there are still reasons why people feel that they should alter Christ's narrative. They do it for political gain. This is, this is like the beginning line that can be seen in Satan's rebellion. It's the trifecta. He wanted God's throne. He wanted God's power for himself. He wanted a lack of responsibility to God's order. But his campaign to enlist us in his rebellion, that's political. It's a political campaign. He might as well be saying in every new movie that comes out or song that comes out or any of these various things in the media, vote for Satan. Because that's what he wants. It's a joke to us when Christian Bale gets up and says, Hail Satan. Or I, I, give this, I, I win this award for Satan. He just won, uh, what is it, a Golden Globe for Vice? Where he portrays Dick Cheney. He, he offered this award to Satan. And you know what the satanic church did? It tweeted out, 
that that was great. Yeah, it was meant as a joke, but guess what? It's not a joke. Is it funny? It's arguable. <laughs> but it's not a joke. There's so many churches that are built upon the back of social movements that could be listed here. They alter Christ in order for political gain. So many churches. Go to the South, and you can see that's what the messages are. Hey, go to Portland, and you can see that's what the messages are. They think that our responsibility is to bring the kingdom of God here on earth in the same form as the zealots who wished for Christ to bring the kingdom of God to overthrow Roman rule. But Christ didn't do that because that's not who Christ is. Is it any wonder that a large degree of our political populace in Washington would view themselves as Christian? Why do you think they do that? Not because they are. People alter God's narrative because they have a goal of personal gain. How many channels can you flip through before you come across the megachurch pastor who lives and looks like Jesus is blessing him by taking the money from those in his congregation who don't? You guys hear the one about the pastor who bought his wife a Lamborghini? That was a couple weeks ago. Do you know what happened a month later? Or a, a week or two later? Turned out that he was having an affair. <sighs> How many church workers are there refusing to stay in their positions because they're not getting paid enough? Yeah, the scripture says that we are supposed to take care of those who work for the church. It doesn't say that we go into work for the church because we uh, are trying to get a particular salary. It says it's because we have a calling. What does that have to do with money? People alter God's narrative because they're intellectually lazy. How many people out here know that scripture was written in ancient languages? Everybody, right? Most people? Yeah? How many of you have tried to learn any of them? A bit. I've even heard people say that they just wish that people would stop bringing up Greek. I've heard that in Bible study. As if they don't understand that Greek is the actual language that these things were spoken in. In fact, in, in speaking of not getting things... I've actually heard people say, they actually believe this, that people should stop saying Jesus um, flippantly because they think that Jesus is the name of Jesus in Hebrew. But that's not his actual name. It's Yeshua. I've even heard Christians who think that Jesus' last name is Christ. I encountered that a lot in high school. It's kind of a strange one. Why do you think that is? Well, there's two options in my mind. If you spend a lot of time with me, years, your whole life with me, 
and you don't know my last name or my actual name or the language that I speak, you are either lazy at best or you're stupid at worst. This is why I prefer the term stupid for Jesus when dealing with Christian culture. How many Christians haven't read the Bible, yet they claim its supremacy in life? They're willing to claim that it's sacred or even holy, but they don't know what it means or says or where things are in it. How many Christians don't know the difference between the New and the Old Testament? How many Christians don't know what the gospel is? Why? Because they're lazy. Now, this isn't to say that people don't have different starting points. Of course you have a different starting point. You don't think that I expect that if you just started going to this church and you've never been to a church your entire life, that you then should know everything that I know. That is ridiculous. But you got to be on a trajectory. you got to have movement. you got to have momentum. you got to produce fruit. In other words, you should be saying every time you come to this church, every time you open your scripture— Man, I learned something. Instead of thinking that you know it all, like you know nothing. Shameful. And that's exactly the point where the wolves come in. They prey on those who don't follow our shepherd. They prey on those who seek power, who stay grazing too long, or who are willing to foolishly lead others, the blind leading the blind into non-safe areas, into a trap. They prey on those of us who are respecters of men, who are political, who wait for the crowd rather than the shepherd, and they separate us, and they isolate us, and finalize our destruction. But that cannot be done when our shepherd is around. When we call out to our Savior, Jesus Christ, the wolves go running because everything is built upon him. He is both the stumbling block and the cornerstone. 1 Peter 1 says it like this. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. And what's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a great cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him, recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes people fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet 
the fate that has been planned for them. Jesus is the stone that the house is built upon. He is also the immovable stone that men trip over in their supposed wisdom. This idea was taken from Jesus himself. Matthew 2 notes this as he is telling the Pharisees a lesson. Then Jesus asked them, did you ever read this in the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over the stone will be broken to pieces, pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. And when the leading priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realized that he was telling a story against them. And that they were the wicked farmers. And so they wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. And Jesus was quoting Psalm 118. Verse 22 says it like this. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. He has fulfilled becoming God's cornerstone for God's will. Everything that we have is built upon him. To those who bash against him, they will fall into pieces. And to anyone who tries to pull at him from below, they will be crushed. Christ is our cornerstone. He is the stumbling block to our own sin, but more importantly, the stumbling block to every other belief and idea and fancy that we have. If you want to know the truth of Buddhism, you don't need to read Siddhartha. Read Christ. If you want to know the truth of Satanism, You don't need to read Aleister Crowley or Anton LaVey. Read Christ. If you want to know the truth of evolution, you don't need to know Darwin. Know Christ. If you want to know even the truth of Mormonism, you're going to be like, wait, isn't Christ in Mormonism? Not this Christ. Don't listen to Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. Read Christ. Remember the words of Jesus, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Knowing Christ is knowing the truth of everything. But knowing Christ means also knowing his teachings. And this is because of his claims. His claims are too big to be taken lightly. Their implications are as far-reaching as any implications come. They cannot be taken lightly. To have a relationship with Christ is to have a relationship with truth, and that is either true or false. Remember this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees in John. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they said, but we are the descendants of Abraham. 
We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you'll be set free? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham. And yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you were following the advice of your father. What? Our father's Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied. For if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you are imitating your real father. And they, repri- they replied, We aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Jesus told them, If God were your father, then you would love me. Because I have come to you from God. I am not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil. And you love to do the evil things that he does. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has always hated the truth. Because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, it is consistent with his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And since I am telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God. But you don't listen because you don't belong to God. The people retorted, you Samaritan devil. That must have been really saucy for their day. You Samaritan devil. Didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? I got him pretty good. No, Jesus said. I have no demon in me. For I honor my father and you dishonor me. And though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. The people said, Now we know that you're possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died. But you say, Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did his prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, If I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it is my Father who will glorify me. And you say, He is our God. But you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know him and obey him. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say that you've seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. 
If you are faithful to my teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Anything less is heretical. The people didn't understand Jesus and those who understood what he was saying here were appalled by his extremes. They were appalled by his extremes. They picked up stones to to kill him because he wasn't saying something that could be taken lightly. The claims that that he was making were heavy. They can't be reconciled with today's teachings about him. The feel-good snowflake Jesus would never call people the children of the devil, would he? He would never cut off someone to tell them that they don't understand something. He would never proclaim himself to be the God. He would never say such worldly and foolish truth claims like, if you remain faithful to my teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The feel-good snowflake Jesus, he would offer truth without an if attached to it. Because anything else would be rude. He would proffer that you don't need to be faithful to anything. You just have to have faith in something. But the true Jesus claimed, some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. But the Jesus of today wouldn't risk alienating the people that he was witnessing to. He would never speak authoritatively about another person's motives. Or speak about what their hearts can or can't handle. But the biblical Jesus dared to question and comment. He said, since I am telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God, but you don't listen because you don't belong to God. The popular Jesus would never speak so plainly to his dissenters. Otherwise, that might offend them. He would never speak for God or challenge someone as a Christian, let alone their status as a Christian. That would be inappropriate. But the historical Jesus would make an absolute truth claim, like, I tell you the truth. Everyone who obeys my teaching will never die. But the Jesus of the culture would never rep his own teaching as better than another's. He would never threaten or accuse people by telling them that they could die. I'm reminded now of Ocarina of Time. There's a very wise character in it who says, hey, Listen, Jesus wasn't a good teacher. As Lewis aptly postulated, he wasn't the first person to say it, but he was the first person to format it this way. Jesus was either a lord, a liar, or a lunatic. Jesus is the logos. He's the source of all things of all knowledge and all truth. And yet many Christians do not believe that Jesus is the source of knowledge and truth. They are perfectly content viewing Jesus as a good teacher and nothing more. Even those who assent to the idea that Jesus 
is God or his son, want to do so without receiving the truths that he gives us about who he is. And every time I hear one of you laugh at me or smirk at me because I call you to judge your version of Jesus against the scripture, which reveals him on every page, you're wrong. And you're in judgment. And you don't want to be standing under the stone when it falls. Every time you get angry because God's righteous standard, the stumbling block of Christ is placed before your worldview and you have been found lacking. It's you that's the problem. Claiming to be God's legitimate children but rejecting the work of his son? His message, his scripture, his leaders, his body? What does the scripture warn? That makes Christ useless to you. And you are wrong. And you are in judgment. And I call you to repent as Christ would call you. As his apostles called you as his Holy Spirit convicts you even now and invites you to feel uncomfortable when you come to church. That's how you're supposed to feel. Like there's more that needs to be done. Christ is the stumbling block of all men and all creation in all time and space and all ideas must measure up to him as his spirit has revealed himself in his word. Do you want to be solid before God, solid in this life, solid as a Christian? Then you need to know Christ. Do you want to be free? Do you want to be free knowing the truth? Then you need to be faithful to his teachings. The false prophets and teachers and evangelists evangelists and influencers will come into our pastures wearing sheep's clothing, and some will even call us pretending to be Jesus, and they will wear his clothes, or carry his staff, but they will not speak with his voice. You want to be free, be faithful to his teachings, and you will know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. Know him as he calls to be known. Do not compromise your knowledge of him for some self-aggrandized facsimile dreamt up by a wolf in sheep's clothing or by the devil himself. Now, the first week I asked you if you were a good follower. And last week I asked if you had the true gospel. And this week I want you to ask yourselves if you know the true Christ. Are you faithful to his teachings? Do you know Jesus of Nazareth? The Jew who lived 2,000 years ago, was born of a virgin, lived a blameless life, was murdered for our sakes. Do you know the Jesus who died so that we may be restored to God? 
though we swore our allegiance, our allegiance in Eden to the devil. Do you know the Jesus who loved us, though we're his enemies, who chose to do right by us, although we choose to do wrong by him? Do you know the Jesus who rose from the grave, whose power surpasses the worst thing that this world could possibly throw at him? The Jesus who offers you adoption into his family through faith, and not by the things that you do, but just by believing and repenting. Do you know the Jesus upon which all reality is folded, the creator of all things, the beginning and the end, the logos? Do you know the Jesus who will one day return on the clouds of heaven to usher in judgment to those who choose to remain his enemies? I pray that you do. Because one day, there will be a reckoning. And the man who stands before you holding the keys to heaven and hell will be the real Jesus, not some leftist, hippie, snowflake, imposter. And he will, not be const- he will not be content to stand amongst a pantheon of gods. He will be sovereign. And he will not be content to pretend that there is no truth. He will be the truth. And he will not be content to let you define your perception as reality any longer. He will call you a liar. Or, when you come before him and received his teachings and you repented and you believed, then he will say, well done. James says this in chapter 4. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Let Christ be the cornerstone of your life, not the rock upon which you fall. Three questions. Is the Christ in which you place your faith the one the scripture has told you about? Is the Christ in which you place your faith the one the scripture has told you about? Two. In your life, is Christ more your cornerstone or your stumbling block? And then three. How aware are you of a false Christ when you see him? Have fun discussing.